Hello, my name is Beverly Chandler and I'm Managing Editor of ETF Express. And I welcome you to the latest edition of Off the Record, the podcast about all things ETF brought to you by ETF Express in partnership with Truss Edge, providers of front, middle and back office software and services to ETF issuers. All views expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and we hope suitably controversial. Today we're going to discuss ETFs as a share class. It's a new phenomenon that's hit both sides of the pond. So we have a nice both sides of the pond panel here today. We have Stephen Carson, who's partner at A&L Goodbody in Dublin, Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, and Athanasios Sarafagis, ETF analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, um, coming to us from New York. So I'm going to open um, by just, we're going to start with the States. So Ben, in the US, what's happened that's allowed the concept of an ETF share class to develop? First of all, Beverly, thanks for having me on. Great to be back. Well, you really, to answer that question, you need to rewind probably more than 20 years when Vanguard introduced its first share class um, of, a, you know, of a mutual fund um, in, back in May 2001. And they launched the total stock market ETF, which is VTI, as a share class of the total stock market mutual fund. And since then, they've launched dozens of other um, share classes uh, using the ETF structure. And that original ETF has actually become quite a monster with o- over 300 billion in assets and counting today. And so what happened back then was Vanguard not only received the uh, exemptive relief or the approval from the U.S. regulator, the SEC, to do it, they also filed a patent on the structure. And that patent uh, effectively allowed them to have a monopoly on this structure uh, really for the last two decades. And that patent has expired uh, in May, just a few weeks ago. And that has sparked obviously an incredible uh, round of interest and intrigue, certainly from the industry, about where this is going to go next. Um, now, that, that share class patent and the structure that was approved extends to passively managed strategies only, not active. So there are some limitations in terms of what Vanguard was able to do. But now in the U.S., we saw the first uh, attempt in quite some time to uh, receive approval for the SEC in the wake of the, um, the expiry of this patent. So a, a U.S. subsidiary um, of an Australian-based asset manager, Perpetual, filed for um, this product uh, back in February. Um, but at this stage, the timing of the approval uh, and feedback from the SEC are, are really unknown at, at this stage. But certainly, um, the industry is watching very closely, and there are you know, uh, serious implications um, uh, for the industry and also for shareholders uh, in these products where there are potential benefits and, and potentially um, some, some issues that investors are going to need to be aware of uh, if this you know, happens to take root in the industry. Thanks for that really neat summary of something that's quite complicated. Stephen, I'm turning to you to ask you what's happened along the same lines in Europe. First of all, Beverly, thank you also for me. This is my first time being on this podcast and delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you and Ben and Ethan. Um, the, the landscape in Europe around this issue is very different. And 
you know, if we take Luxembourg, for example, it has been possible to have ETF and non-ETF share classes in a USITS um, for quite a while. It's been a feature of a Mundy's Luxembourg ETF range for, for quite a long time. In Ireland, it's slightly different. Uh, the central bank traditionally didn't permit ETF share classes and non-ETF share classes, but following their ETF discussion paper and feedback report in 2017, the central bank committed to updating its USITS Q&A to provide for a disclosure regime which would allow managers to launch products or, or sub-funds of USITS with ETF and non-ETF share classes. So in the time since, uh, we would have worked uh, with Ben's team in Ireland and our mutual client, Han ETF, to add unlisted share classes to all of their ETF product range. Um, so that, that probably didn't create a stir because they were unlisted classes in an ETF. But quite recently, when HSBC added ETF share classes to their unlisted passive uh, range, this created a bit of a stir because one of the implications in an Irish context to adding ETF share classes to an unlisted usage is that the central bank interprets the ESMA guidelines as requiring uh, you to change the name of that individual subfund to include the usage ETF identifier. Now, I, I think the central bank's reading of the ESMA guidelines is, is probably the correct one. It's, it, I think it's an unhelpful requirement of ESMA, but I don't think the central bank is wrong to take that view. The CSF in Luxembourg, however, takes a, a more flexible approach, and they allow the identifier to be used at the share class level. Now, I, I think for most managers, you could probably live with changing the name of an unlisted usage that you add an ETF share class to, but I can certainly imagine a scenario where you're maybe a traditional um, mutual fund manager, you don't have ETF range, you have some flagship products, you might want to add an ETF share class to one of those products. Let's say it's a, it's been around for five or six years, let's say it's a couple of, bi couple of billion in assets under management. It, it would seem a bit like the tail wagging the dog if you had to rename that product as a usage ETF just because it issued a, an ETF share class. So there's a sort of disparity between how Luxembourg's approaching it and how Dublin's approaching it. Absolutely. And um, so, Ethan, I'm going to ask you, because you cover Europe from New York, so you know both these stories, presumably. What do you make of both sets of developments? It's, uh, it's interesting for sure. I guess we'll start with the U.S. And, you know, Vanguard's the only one that has this, right, like uh, Ben had mentioned. And it's only a matter of the way they're growing. It's only a matter of time before they're probably the largest issuer in the U.S. Um, they're closing in quite, you know, rapidly on BlackRock. Now, is it to say that this gave them an advantage? Like, what, meaning, would they have grown without it? I don't. I don't know. Right. I think Vanguard still would be doing what they're doing, but I think there's something to be said about them wanting a patent on it and wanting to protect it. Right. And I think one main thing in the U.S. is the the tax, like the tax advantage. And now tacking this onto a mutual fund. And if you're able to, let's say, push these gains out through the ETF and wash them out through the through these what we call the heartbeat trades, it now makes the mutual fund more tax efficient, which I think is a win-win for everybody, right? You now have a mutual fund that's tax efficient and you're able to tack on the ETF. Now, I get that in Europe, that's not necessarily a, a bigger, it's not really an issue, right? So where I think, while in the US, it seems like it was more tax focused, I think in Europe, what could happen is it's just a new way to get active back into into the market, right, which is definitely lacking compared to where the US is on active ETFs. But, 
you see an appetite for active for sure because like even Ben had alluded to, everyone's trying to get into the market, whether it was trying to push on this Vanguard patent, whether they're doing conversions, whether they're just launching their own ETF business. I've always been a fan of the share class. I just think it's cleaner compared to doing a conversion or something like that. But um, I think this will be a, a, a sort of a new entry ground for active to at least come in, maybe less of a tax issue in the US. But uh, overall, I think it's bullish. I think it's just going to potentially bring more strategies to the market, keep all the distribution channels open. Uh, so overall, I think it's a really positive development. And you mentioned there the conversions, which last year I seem to be, uh, last two years, I think I've been writing about how just weekly and the billions that that's added to the assets for ETFs in the US. So explaining to the European audience, we know that this, this is mutual funds and in America converting to be ETFs. Will that stop? Is that business going to stop now, Ben? Well, the concept of mutual fund ETF conversions has been the hot topic, and we've seen that accelerate over the last 12 months or so. Um, in our own pipeline, um, you know, we've seen a, a, a building queue of issuers looking to, to do this. And back to the earlier comment, I think it just is simply another way to get access to you know, the ETF structure. And there are lots of reasons why um, asset managers are looking to do that, but um, it is complicated and it does come with friction, both in terms of the, the cost to actually do the conversion and also to the shareholders who need to provide their brokerage account information um, and, and other implications, uh, especially if you're a qualified plan shareholder, which uh, is you know retirement accounts, etc. Um, so the concept of a share class definitely provides a, another access point and potentially an easier one for both the asset manager and potentially the, the shareholder as well, um, where again, that would eliminate some of the friction um, around um, you know, these, these sort of conversions. That said, I think there are different reasons why some managers would still go down that conversion route. Um, you know, even if this became available. And I think, again, back to the issue of taxes, always important, right? There are certain um, and many benefits that could be conveyed to those mutual fund shareholders. And obviously the ETF tax benefits uh, would could potentially hold. But the reverse situation, depending on the size, the flow, the market conditions, could create adverse tax consequences for those ETF shareholders, um, again, if they are unable to um, you know, eliminate those gains through the in-kind mechanism or there's an outsized uh, amount of transactions in the mutual fund that, that again, create those tax consequences. So there's some very uh, you know, uh, difficult decisions for asset managers to make um, should, you know, should this come, uh, become available. Um, but again, I think we would uh, still, again, see um, a lot of asset managers take, take advantage of the share class structure, but it wouldn't necessarily kill off the conversions. Stephen, obviously we don't have the, that conversion business in Europe, but perhaps I could just ask you, I remember the umbrella fund. Are we going to see these sort of different structures underneath one in, within one sort of fund structure that would be available to investors in Europe? It's an interesting point that we haven't seen fund 
or ETF conversions in Europe. And I, I would say there's one exception to that. I think there's a Swiss manager who um, did a cross-border merger of some Luxembourg funds into Irish ETF receiving funds, and that was billed as a conversion because they effectively migrated unlisted products into listed uh, versions of those in Ireland. Um, and I think one of the dynamics in Europe, which is markedly different to the US market, is that you, you don't get the same tax benefits trading an ETF relative to an unlisted usage fund in Europe. Um, e either way, they're, they're tax-exempt vehicles. Um, so you don't have that driver. But, but the advantage perhaps an ETF has over its unlisted usage um, version is just that ease of access, ease of trading. And I thought what was really interesting was a report BlackRock issued recently which showed that the newer generation of investors are consuming ETFs more than previous generations. And that's probably a factor of online or app-based investing. So assuming that that trend continues, then all asset managers distributing products in Europe, will have, if they don't already have an ETF strategy, will need to have an ETF strategy. And there's a couple of ways of, of, of developing an ETF strategy in Europe. I guess the, the, the standard way is to set up a, an ETF platform. Now, obviously, Ireland is the undisputed uh, domineering domicile for ETFs in Europe. Um, I love the revised statistic of 67% of all European ETFs are domiciled and authorised here. So that necessarily means setting up an, an Irish platform. The big challenge at the moment is that post-Brexit, it's quite difficult and expensive to register in the UK using the 272 process. Hopefully, uh, common sense will prevail and a more straightforward recognition path will be introduced in the UK and that won't be an issue, but at the moment that is a challenge for new entrants. So to pick up on your point about the umbrella, uh, Beverly, most managers who have an existing Irish platform will have it structured as an umbrella fund structure so they could add new sub funds to the umbrella as ETFs and it's you know it's a case of updating your offering documents to provide for unlisted sub fund dealing and then ETF sub fund dealing or alternatively adding ETF share classes to existing unlisted products um, but I think it's useful for listeners to know that you can have ETF and non-ETF subfunds coexisting uh, on a on an umbrella structure, the tax benefits that Irish ETFs get in terms of uh, lower withholding rates on U.S. source income can be, and this is subject to U.S. tax confirmation. This isn't tax advice. Are, are able to access the double tax treaty benefits at an individual subfund level, uh, which is useful if you have a, a, a platform with a range of unlisted and listed products. So, Ethan, what's your take? Do you think this is going to increase the flow of assets into ETFs generally across both areas? Yeah, I think so. Whether it's natural or it's just that money being remapped over from mutual funds into ETFs, right? So, someone when you look at like DFA, for example, they were really big on the conversions. Probably like one of the biggest sort of funds or you know brands moving over. And so, even though there's been flows following their conversion. A lot of it's just a big lump sum being brought into the ETF market. But overall, I, I think, you know, I think there's still an appetite for active. We, we like to track this. Something like 35, 40% of the flows this year have gone to active funds in the US. So the appetite is there. 
I'm a big proponent of, of offering, you know, uh, more product structures, whether, you know, whether, whatever, if you like the strategy, if you want to use a fund, that's fine. If you want to use an ETF, that's fine. I like, and I think the conversions were maybe such a big deal because maybe issuers didn't want to wait for the Vanguard patent, right? They're unsure of what's going to happen. Could they, could they use it? Um, so it's like, Hey, let's find another way to get into it. Uh, but I think now if, if they're able to use once, I think someone figures it out, everyone will follow. And this, I think what happened with DFA, DFA did it first, then you started seeing all these other conversions. I think it just, and also internally, and I've worked at issuers in the past, you know, ones that let's say an ETF business that was part of a larger asset manager. Sometimes you had to sell ETFs internally, right? So to get your salespeople to want to use ETFs, this now gives them options. Hey, you want to use the mutual fund? That's fine. You want to use the ETF? That's fine. As long as they're not on an equal, if the mutual fund is just as tax efficient now as the ETF, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. So overall, I think it's just going to bring more strategies, more optionality, which is overall a good thing. Um, and, you know, I think, I think like Ed Bennett said, once we see what happens with the patent and if issuers can use it, I think it'll definitely be used for sure. But I think overall a, a bullish development. I think uh, I'm all for more stuff, more options for investors. Uh, and if that can lower costs on existing active funds or other mutual funds, that's also a benefit too. Just one point I'd make on that, you know, for a long time, people talked about ETFs as if that was the, the ETF was the strategy or the product, whereas the ETF piece is merely a wrapper. And actually to, to Ethan's point, if if you're looking at having listed and unlisted share classes in the same product, then it sort of proves the point that actually the ETF element is a distribution channel. It's an access point. Um, and actually what's underneath that is the strategy of the product, whether that's passive or increasingly active. I would agree. And I would just simply add that, you know, the holy grail here is to be agnostic from an asset management perspective. And, and the way I always think about it is you can have your ice cream and it's just a matter of whether you want it in a cone, a cup or a cone with sprinkles. Um, but in the end, it's still ice cream. And maybe there's some different charges um, with the sprinkles, but ultimately you're getting the same content inside. And that's really what the industry has been striving for for quite some time. But back to the earlier comment, a comment um, which is some of the issues around distribution. And again, simply because it's an ETF structure, obviously the distribution opportunity is clearly attractive given where the market is going globally. But just because it's an ETF doesn't necessarily mean anything if you don't have the right distribution, marketing, uh, it's priced correctly. Um, obviously, the investment content fits well into the ETF, um, you know, share class or, or you know, or, or as a sleeve under a, a super umbrella. So all of those other things have to be in place. But I think, you know, that that concept, um, you know, makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, let the market ultimately decide how they want to consume um, that investment content. Do we have any idea when the SEC is going to announce on this? Well, I'll, I'll start. I, I think it's fair to say it's very unclear. Um, and at this stage, we don't have much information to rely on. And it's been quite some time since there's anything in the public record, right, about where the SEC may or may not um, stand on this. Um, but I think we will start to have some information soon um, as these filings work their way through. I think one of the other um, things that 
is important to keep in context here is that yes, um, you know this is a this is really a, a critical item for the industry and being watched very closely. But it is just one of many proposals outstanding from the SEC, and where this fits on their priority queue is also unknown. Um, so it has a lot of competition from a regulatory standpoint in terms of you know, the uh, appetite and honestly the ability to create the appropriate framework and rulemaking. But we do have uh, you know, a, a little bit of insight into some of the issues from the past that would need to be resolved, which is whether or not it would apply to passive uh, only or passive and active certainly what kind of disclosure the SEC would require, um, you know, for example, around the taxation uh, implications for both the, um, you know, unlisted and listed share class. And one other issue that has been um, floated and, and certainly out there in some of the public record has been the SEC's focus on the allocation of expenses. So, for example, um, a, a fee like a, uh, a from the listing exchange, right, that would obviously apply to the ETF share class, but not the unlisted share class is a small example of trying to make sure also there's equitable allocation or fair allocation of expenses. Um, from an asset servicing standpoint, um, the way I like to think about it is it's just math. So as long as we get the effectively the appropriate rules and we'll see what happens, um, you know, most likely we'll be able to handle those calculations. And certainly there's lots of precedent, again, in other parts of the world, which we service. And also even in just mutual funds themselves, which have multiple share classes, and we have literally thousands of those uh, on our platform. Um, so I, I go back to my, my ultimate principle, my underlying principle which is it's just math. But we need somebody needs to give us that formula or the guidelines on how to apply it uh, to, to be able to ensure that we can service the industry and you know meet all of the SEC or, or other regulatory you know uh, framework. Stephen, do you want to add add to that? Yeah, and, you know the European market is very different, as we said at the outset. It is possible to have listed and unlisted share classes in use its products in Luxembourg and Ireland and there's no restriction to passive or, or active it, it you know it's available across strategies uh, one point I'd add and going back to the tax advantage that Irish ETFs in particular have um, and, and maybe just explain that slightly um, Irish funds which whose shares are traded regularly so an ETF uh, satisfies the limitation of benefits test under the Irish US double tax treaty, which happens to apply a 15% withholding tax rate on US source dividends as opposed to 30% for, say, a Luxembourg or an unlisted Irish fund. Um, that, that's a real advantage to a passive fund with US allocations. Um, an active fund with US allocations, it's pure alpha. So, you know, that's one of the advantages having an Irish ETF has. Now, if you had an ETF which is relying on access to that double tax treaty benefit and it launches unlisted share classes, then I think the manager would need to be aware that there is a compliance uh, piece around ensuring that the level of trading in the ETF class doesn't fall below the threshold 
that would mean your, your benefits under the double tax treaty fall away. So that's just one point I think somebody would need to bear in mind if they were thinking about having listed and unlisted share classes. Interestingly, the HSBC products who adopted this model are fixed income. So that, that question, I guess, doesn't arise in that context. And Ethan, what do you have to add to this? I know you've just done a paper or a study on active ETFs, and we don't even know if they'll be included in this. But yeah, yeah, and I should have mentioned that first. Like this could be a moot point, right? If active does, because it seems like that's where the appetite is, and it seems like that's a big part of the asset management industry that's still finding a way to come into the market, whether through conversions, launching their own business. Again, I've always been a fan of this because it seems the cleanest way. But um, you know, like Ben said, there's still a lot of unanswered. Um, you know, things that need to be figured out. Like, for example, the ETF rule, which passed like in 2019, share class ETFs were left out of that. So now if I am an asset manager, I create a share class. Am I part of the rule? Am I outside of the rule? So there might be the secondary filings or petitions need to come in after if you want the advantages of the rule. So I think, you know, the SEC is dealing with a lot, you know, with crypto ETFs and things like that. So I don't know, again, where this ranks on their... um, you know, on their list. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think even if this doesn't happen, issues or find another way to get into the market. But I, I, I just think this seems like a pretty easy way. You have your existing fund, you tack this on, you you start making it more tax efficient, you keep your distribution channels open. Um, so, uh, no, I think they, I think both did a great job of covering everything. So uh, I, I think, you know, I've heard rumblings, you know, uh, of a lot of demand for it or but um, you know we're, we're still waiting to see what's actually going to happen it's going to be interesting i hadn't realized perpetual was an australian firm so that's interesting as well it's not domestic um, us coming in to do to shake everything up i'm going to say um i think we've covered that subject thoroughly i'd just like to thank you all for being here thank you to my guests so ben slovin stephen carson and athanasios sarafagas this is this outing of off the record from etf express in partnership with trust edge providers of front middle and back office software and services to etf issuers thank you so much and i hope you enjoyed listening off the record is brought to you by etf express in partnership with trust edge providers of front middle and back office software and services to etf issuers Production by Imogen Rostrum and Lisa Hines, and music by Otto Balfour. Thank you to our guests on this episode of Off the Record from ETF Express, and to you for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time.